Let's stand for the reading of the scriptures tonight and that you get home. You're tired. It's been a long week. But it's a good week. Amen? Amen. Psalms 130. Psalms 130 tonight. We're back in our series this evening. I'm going higher. Some of us are saying I'm getting tired, but we're still going higher. Amen? Psalms 130. Psalms 130. It's a good turnout. Thank you for being here tonight. Again, some of you didn't give testimonies, but there's so many wonderful things that have happened these last few weeks. Thank you so much for this. Just keep praying. Hope you'll keep praying and fasting for these upcoming weeks. Pray for our revival meetings. They're just around the corner. How many, how many of you remember Brother Lou Rossi? Okay, Brother Rossi's going to be here next week. It's going to be great. He's, that's his famous line. It's going to be great. Okay? And uh, you want to be here for Brother Ross, and he's a fire plug of a preacher, and you want to be here for that. If, you, if your, your friends didn't make it to Friend Day, man, tell them next Sunday is a continuation, amen? And just have them here, and it'll be great. And then we're going to continue those services Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to get hungry for the Word of God, and we're praying for revival to break out. So you, you, uh, you be here for that. And then we're, just a couple weeks after, we'll be right into our Thanksgiving banquet. And we're still looking for volunteers. If you haven't signed up for something, you sign up for that and help us out. And we've got plenty things for everyone to do. That'll be a wonderful, wonderful event. Psalms 130. I want you to listen carefully tonight as I read the scripture. I was going to have you read it with me, but I might have you read a couple of verses out loud later on. But listen very carefully as we read it. You might want to get a pen out or marker. I might tell you to mark up a few things as we're on the way. Say amen if you're there. Yeah. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, amen, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Would you read verses 3 and 4 out loud with me together, please? Verses 3 and 4. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Tonight, I want you to zone in with me tonight on verse 4. There is forgiveness with thee. How many thankful you're forgiven of all your sins? Amen. How many thankful for 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we're going to spend a few minutes tonight looking at the doctrine of forgiveness as it surrounds this whole concept here. And maybe if you're here tonight, if you've never experienced the washing away of your sins and the forgiveness that comes from God, I pray this evening God will speak to your hearts. You'd call on that wonderful Lord we call God. We can wash away your sins and forgive you tonight. Father, bless your word this evening. Your people have worked so hard. Thank you for loving us today and giving all that you've done this day and this week. I know there's a lot of people in this room, they're bone tired, Lord. They're just, man, they're about ready to collapse here. But I pray, Father God, you give them special grace, especially this week. And thank you, Lord, for our, our members who work so hard, getting visitors and guests to come to church and laboring around the word. Bless our time tonight. Lord, we need to feed our souls. We need you to feed us, Lord, and to saturate and speak to us tonight. I pray that tonight you'll help me this evening. I feel so weak and unable, but I need your help this evening to be a blessing to your people. I ask this of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't want to be redundant, but praise the Lord for all the prayer and work that went into this week and all the salvation of souls. I don't know, probably this week when it's all said and done for, there'll be close to 25, 30 people have gotten saved this past week. And we thank God for that. And a lot of gospel seed that was sown and a lot of people that, were, that perhaps have been out of church, that came back to church for the first time. And some that are in need of a church and perhaps are not in the right kind of church and souls not getting fed, not being built up, not being pastored, things like that. And we're praying this, this evening that God will work in their hearts. This morning I preached, I, I actually kick-started a new series we're going to do on Sunday mornings until the end of the year uh, uh, entitled So Great. 
And um, this morning I kicked it off by talking about so great salvation, and next week, maybe two weeks from now, I might be preaching on uh, so great a cloud of witnesses, and there's just a lot of lot of things with that. If you look up the phrase "so great," that just kind of goes with that, and I think it'll be a very timely for us as we get into this uh, this fall season here. But uh, tonight I want to continue on that because we're back in our series from Psalms 120 to 134, and if you haven't been with us, let me just give you a quick introduction for that. Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 are called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Jews recited, they memorized these psalms, you know, these 14, 15 psalms, they memorized them. And when the Jews came back, uh, when they came back to Jerusalem, and they made their way up the hill, because Jerusalem was a city on a hill, when they made their way up, um, they, they would recite these psalms. So they came back on Passover, and they came back on Pentecost, and they came back on the Feast of Tabernacles, they would recite those psalms as they made their way up the hill to the city of Jerusalem. The priests would, would, would recite these psalms as they walked up to the temp, inside the temple, and they start with the court of the Gentiles and make their way and go through the court of the women and so forth like that, and they would, they would go up to a step, which is very, pretty awesome to me. They'd walk up to a step, they'd quote Psalms 120. They'd go up a second step, they'd quote Psalms 121. They'd go up a second, uh, the third step, they'd quote Psalms 122, and just, they would recite these psalms, and they, they, they didn't recite it like we kind of do on memorization, the very, very quickly, and just to go off of memory. I mean, it was passionate to them. It was very meaningful. And part of the, the ingraining, in, as far as the Hebrews were concerned, was memorizing the scriptures. The same could be said of Psalms 119. Psalms 119, they was purposely, the Holy Spirit led them to write it according to the Hebrew alphabet, so that they would use that acrostic to help them remember how to start it. So if you look at Psalms 119, verse 1, it starts with the letter Aleph, which is the, the, the Hebrew letter for that. And uh, they would just go all the way to the end there to one, verse 165 and recite those psalms. These psalms were very meaningful. These psalms were about uh, things going on in their lives. Frequently you read about, they, they make mention about my soul. We see that in Psalms 130. They talk about mention about their soul. And they make mention about the home. And they make mention about the Lord. And all these psalms, you cannot read them without the fact that the emphasis is upon God and the Lord in our life there. And so they're called the Psalms of Ascent. They remind us that we're going higher. And tonight in Psalms 130, we see, um, we see a believer that was going through a deep, deep, a difficult time. In fact, all of us will go through what he goes through. I always say this frequently. One of the best things about reading the Psalms is that the Psalms reflect what you and I go through in our Christian life. There is no experience in the human life you'll go through that is not captured in the book of Psalms there. I mean, if you're going through depression, you're even suicidal, which I pray you're not, or you're just going through those depths, so you cannot read through the Psalms without realizing somebody touched that. Or you're going through some, you're struggling with sin, which is what he's dealing with here. You're struggling with sin or some, some issue in your life. The Psalms touch all of these here. And uh, Jerry Bridges said this in, in his book on holiness, which is so good if you don't have it. It's a book he wrote many years ago, but you ought to get that. He said this about forgiveness. He said, our sins have been put away. To use the language of the scriptures, they're completely removed, put behind God's back, blotted out, remembered no more, and hurled into the depths of the sea. Now for some believers, and especially new believers, one of the challenges many of them have is just this, they have this challenge or struggle and just about their eternal security and about the forgiveness of their sins because they, they, they have this tendency to vastly wondering and they worry at night and they, and they, and they, you know, they sit through church and they don't say anything to you but they break out in cold sweats and they'll sit here right in front of me when I'm preaching and, or maybe in a Sunday school class, and they're worried about their eternal security. And they've been saved one year and five years and 10 years and 15 years. I mean, I, we still got people right now, I'm still, my wife and I are counseling through right now, they've been saved many years who are struggling with their eternal security. And you'd be amazed, even when you've gone through all the scriptures, and there's ample scriptures on eternal security, that there's some people that they say, okay, I, I understand it. But deep down in the heart, they're having a difficult time having faith in God and that matter there. And so, you know, tonight I just want to just, before I get into the message, I just want to say one of the most wonderful doctrines of all the Bible was the believer's eternal security. And I'm going to say tonight, you know, we, we say kind of tritely, but you know, once saved, you're always saved. You can't lose your salvation, okay? Because God, God's not going to give you the gift of God and take it back there. But think with me about some of the verses of Scripture, and I'm going to give it to you tonight so you can look it up yourself. Eternal security means that your salvation in Jesus Christ is completely safe. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is completely safe, okay? Now, you cannot get saved one day, and like the, Ca the Campbellites will tell you, you'll lose it the next day. Or some of this, this, oh, this Calvinistic Armenian nonsense there, well, one day you're saved, and you've got to, you have to do the keeping. Let me tell you tonight, God does the saving, God does the keeping. 
and unto him that is able to keep us from falling. Okay? God does the saving, God does the keeping. So look at, listen with me tonight for some of the verses of Scripture that you should be familiar with. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the moment you're saved, you're brought into the family of God. Listen to this. For as many as received him, to them gave he power. It's not your power. It's not the church's power. It's God's power. To them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Okay? It's the power of God. Think with me about Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I mean, you talk about liberation. Amen? You talk about getting the chains being set free. And can it be? Amen? I mean, that's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. And think with me about John 5.24. I love taking people to John 5.24. John 5, 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And listen to what it says. And shall not see condemnation. And here's the phrase I love. But is passed from death unto life. That's assurance of your salvation there, okay? And then, of course, we have 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto thee that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 23 reminds us that salvation is the free gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You and I have nothing to do with the saving. You and I have nothing to do with the keeping. It's all of God, okay? Romans, John 10, 28 Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life. That's the gift of God. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, if you're struggling tonight with that, please do not leave church this evening. Please do not leave church tonight without seeing me. If you're struggling with that today, because I, I want, I don't, man, I, the, the worst thing to do is go to bed tonight, and I don't care how comfortable your pillow is. If you go to bed tonight, put your hand on the pillow, struggling about your eternal security. I want you to find victory and liberty in our Lord Jesus Christ tonight because most believers struggle with that because they don't know the scriptures and they haven't learned to have faith in God. And I, I want to encourage you tonight, if you're struggling with that, please do not leave tonight until we've helped you through that. Now look at Psalms 130. In Psalms 130, we're looking at a believer who in the beginning was, was struggling about the forgiveness of God, but he's encouraged about God's forgiveness and the work of salvation is hard. And the key thought this evening is, of course, everything in this Psalm 130 is great, but the key thought in Psalms 130 tonight where he says, but there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Now we're going to have a Bible study and I'm going to preach a little bit through that if my voice carries out. And I want you to just li listen to me for a few things today. I want you to turn me, first of all, number one to verse three. And I want you to notice that this writer his perception. I want you to consider his perception. This man had a cognizant perception. He had a cognizant perception. We have a starting point tonight. This man had a cognizant perception. He said, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? He was extremely, extremely conscious of God's judgment and disapproval of sin. How many understand tonight? How many agree with me tonight? God disapproves of sin. God disapproves of sin. How many understand tonight that we that God God has to judge sin? How many understand that tonight? Okay. So this man he says in verse three, "If thou Lord shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand?" He was saying, "If God judges us for our sins, if He marks us, and if you do a study, and we'll get to, we're going to get to this one in our study on Second Thessalonians." When God marks someone, that's not a good thing. The Bible says, for instance, tells us in Romans chapter 16, if someone is divisive, you need to mark that man. And the Bible's talking about here, he's saying, Lord, if thou shouldest judge my sins, if, thou, if you should mark my iniquities, if you mark me for my sins, and let's be honest tonight, we're going to look at some of this this evening. If God marks us for our sins, we don't stand a chance is what he's saying. We're in deep trouble. We're in serious trouble there. Notice as he talks about this perception. Notice the wickedness he has about this, the, the perception about wickedness. Notice he uses the phrase here, iniquities. Would you circle the word iniquities in verse 3? Now, if you've not studied this, I want to tell you what the word iniquity means. The word iniquity in the Hebrew and even in the Greek is a very strong word that describes the perversity and the depravity of sin. Depravity explains our sinful nature. It's Romans chapter 1, which we'll look at in a moment. His perception was about the wickedness of the human heart. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. And he gives, you know, we get a full disclosure. If you keep your finger in Psalms 130, I want you to turn briefly to Romans chapter 1 with me, please, tonight. 
And by turning there, it keeps you awake. And turning there helps me not make, to make sure I don't miss anything, okay? But Romans chapter 1, you there? You need a little more time to find it? Let's give you a little more time to find it. Romans chapter 1. And I want you to scroll down to verse 24. Because in verses 24 to 31, he speaks to us about iniquities and wickedness. In church settings today, unless the preacher's bold and biblical, most churches avoid preaching Romans chapter 1 because they're afraid of offending somebody. They're afraid of backlash or losing members. But I'm going to tell you tonight, this is a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Baptist church. And because it's a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Baptist church, we have to declare the whole counsel of God. Precept upon precept, line upon line, word upon word. And you can't, you can't avoid Romans chapter 1 because if you avoid chapter 1, you won't understand the rest of the book of Romans. You won't understand the gloriousness of God's grace and salvation. But notice some things as he describes our iniquities and our depravity. Notice, and I'm just going to highlight some words that, that you'll look at there. Notice in verse 24, he talks about uncleanness. And uncleanness to the loss of their own hearts. And uh, notice we go down and he talks about, later on in verse 26, about vile affections. And he talks about women changing their natural use into that which is against nature. And that, that just gives you thoughts some of the stuff going on in the world today is not natural. It's unnatural. Okay? It's not natural. You better say amen to that tonight. And uh, you notice in verse 27 he talks about burning in their lusts and doing that which is unseemly. And he says, he talks about, and this is, this is the depravity of man, verse 28. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God, and God giving them over to reprobate mind. And you better, if you're not saved tonight, listen, if you've heard the gospel many times, or you have somebody you know that's heard the gospel many times, that's a fearful thing for God to give you over to a reprobate mind. He considers you as being worthless. You're nothing in the sense of the fact you've, re, you've resigned yourself to being somebody that will reject the gospel. And basically, you've told the Holy Spirit you don't want the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. And that's not a good place to be. Because God doesn't want to give anybody over to a reprobate mind there. And we go on a little bit further in verse 29. And he, and he lists all these, these terrible, terrible sins that are part of human nature. He talks about unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness and full of envy and murder. By the way, that's kind of an interesting thought how he described envy. We're full of envy, he says there. And murder and debate and deceit and malignity and whispers and backbiters and haters of God and despiteful and proud and boasters and inventors of evil things and disobedient parents, the inventors of evil things. Listen, you go back to Genesis chapter 6, and the Bible says the heart of man was wicked beyond imagination. And that's what he talks about, the, the heart of man. And he talks about verse 31 here, without understanding and covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and merciful. I mean, that describes the wickedness of the human heart. Hey, when we go back to Psalms 130, you know what the psalmist says? Thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. You take any one of these sins he's mentioning, or these wicked sins, and he says, Lord, if you should mark any of those iniquities and anyone's life, who shall stand? Who stands a chance? Hey, but before we go on and worry about somebody else's sins, how about our sins? How about our sins? If God should mark our sins, how about if God marks our lying? How about God marks our, our inconsistencies and our unfaithfulness? How about, God, how about whatever it may be, our prayerlessness? Okay? If God should mark our iniquities, he says, who shall stand? He was concerned. He, was, he had a perception about the wickedness. But notice in Romans 1.18, he had a perception about the wrath of God. And he said in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. In Colossians 3.6, Paul, he's writing about the, the believer's walk and the crucifying the flesh. He said, he talks about some sins that are very terrible. And he said in verse 6 there, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Hey, you know, there's one thing, all the writers of scripture, all these inspired men of God were clear of one thing, that where there's sin, there's the judgment of God. And I, I know that sounds so negative on a friend day, but and I'm not, we're not going to dwell on that for, for a whole long time, thank God for that. But I just wanted you to understand tonight, this man had a cognitive perception because he understood that where there's sin, there's the wrath of God. Listen, you cannot run from the wrath of God. You cannot run from judgment. You have to go back. Some of us need to go back and read the sermon written by Jonathan Edwards, that sermon he preached, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it wasn't says that God is angry, but sin is, God is angry against sin. And as he read that, men, people were holding on to the pulpit and they were holding on their chairs and there was wailing and crying because they were gripped back in that Puritan time of the, of the terribleness of sin there. And the writer here, he's very cognizant in Psalms 130 verse 3 about the wrath of God. But would you notice something else? He has a perception about wickedness. He has a perception about the wrath of God, but he has a perception that leads to worry. Would you notice how he writes this? He's writing out of anxiety. 
He's writing out of worry. He's wor- he's because he's looking at himself. He's not worrying about everybody else. He's looking at himself because this is a post-exile psalm. He's looking at himself, and he's looking at, his, he's looking at his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He said, if thou, Lord, he said, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? He's worried. He says, Lord, if you mark our sins, I mean, he's up at night biting his fingernails. God, if you, if you mark my sins, God, what chance do I have to stand? I mean, what is the chastisement of God? I mean, what is it, God, that I'm going to do? And I'm not sure, but maybe this man went back and he read through the book of Job and read about the chasing of Job, who the Bible says was a righteous man. And as a righteous man, he went through the ringer. And if you can imagine, if a righteous man went through the ringer of the chasing of God, what would an unrighteous man go through through the chasing of God? And he's thinking, Lord, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? And this man has a cognitive perception about the fact that it is, it is unprofitable and it's not right that we live in a a life that is laissez-faire and careless about our Christian walk with God because we have a God in heaven who loves us, a God in heaven who's faithful, a God in heaven who's merciful, a God in heaven who extends his mercies to us day after day, a God in heaven who's long-suffering and patient with you and I, who begs us to come. He's like the father in the the story of the prodigal son who goes out every night and he's patiently waiting for his son to return and he waits for us. He says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who shall stand. And I'm just saying tonight, we should be concerned about our walk with God. And we should be concerned about what we're, what's going on. And we should be concerned about how we end our life. This past week on Friday morning, it was up early in the morning as I normally am to read and study my Bible and get ready to go into a time of prayer. And a, and a text message came through. And I don't I ignore most text messages until I finish my prayer time. But that morning I did not. And the text message came through was Mrs. Donna Reed. And Mrs. Reed is the wife of Pastor Dan Reed. And she said, Brother Fong, she said, I just want you to know my husband went home to be with the Lord this morning. And, she, and I read that letter that mo- for a moment. A tears came to my eyes and shrug in my heart. I love Brother Reed. If he wasn't so sick, I would have had him come every year. He was so sick. He had this immune system disorder in his body at the age of he didn't know what he had at age of 48. He just wasn't feeling good. He was getting tired very easily. And uh, Brother Reed went to see the doctor. They had him do a battery of tests. And then they had him go see a, cardiovas- uh, a cardiovascular guy. And the cardiovascular doctor looked him up. He says, sir, you are 48 years of age. This should not be for a 48-year-old man. But you're, all your arteries are clogged. You've got to have open-heart surgery. And so they're trying to figure out what happened. And they couldn't find out after doing a bunch of testing. They did some genetic testing. Found out he had this disease called Fabry's disease. And Fabry's disease basically is where your body attacks itself. It attacks attacks the immune system. And basically, there's a slow decline and deterioration of, your or- of his organs. Some of you remember the last time Brother Reed was here. At that time, his kidneys started failing. You don't know this, but when we were back in that old building there, when he was preaching there, he was only running about 20% capacity on his kidneys there. I mean, he was, kidneys were failing. He had barely, hardly any energy. His heart was clogging up again. He had all these different ailments going on with him. We prayed many times. We prayed for God's healing on his life. It got to a point when I, the last time I preached for his church there at Harvest Baptist Church in Ackworth, Georgia, the church had bought him a very nice, a very expensive wheelchair so he could get himself around the property. God had blessed him with, I think, a 15-acre property, a 20-acre property, but he couldn't get around. He, I mean, he couldn't walk from here to the, to the, to the sound desk there without lo- just being out of breath. And they brought him this, this thing to get him around, and it was amazing. I'd watch him as he was leading the church there. He'd sit up there, and the people were amening away with the preachers. He'd sit in the wheelchair, and then, and then when he preached, basically, he'd get out of the wheelchair, He'd sit in a little stool there, and he would just sit there, and, uh, you know, he just preached the Word of God and taught them the Word of God, and, uh, and you know, he, he didn't have the dynamic that he had before because he was so weak, but let me tell you something. When I heard Brother Reed just read the Scripture, the power of God was all over that man. The power of God was all over that Pope, and the power of God was there, and listen, when I got that message from his wife that Pastor Reed went home to be the Lord, she continued on and said, Brother, I just want you to know he loved you and your wife, and he loved your church very much. One of his favorite churches he went to was Her- Heritage Baptist Church, and I just wept for a moment, and I I sent her back a message. I said, Mrs. Reed, you tell, I just want you to know we love you. We're praying for you right now. By the way, deacons, I need to meet with you. We're going to send her a love offering to help that lady out during this time. But, but, we, but I just said, I want you to know that I, I, I'm going to miss your husband very, very much. And I look forward one day to seeing him up in glory. But I want you to listen to me. That man finished well. He finished well and he finished strong. Now, I don't know about you. But when I, get to, when I cross that line, I want to finish well, and I want to finish strong. And listen, there's all kinds of temptations we face, and we've just got all these things going on. And you've got to stay in this series, because this series of Psalms 120 to 134 gets better. I'm looking forward to Psalms 131 and looking at that. But just, I'm telling you right now, we, we need to be cognizant of what's going on in our life. We, we, should not, we should not be at a place where we're just very laissez-faire about our, about our sins and our walk with God. Listen, it ought to bother you when, you're, when things are not right. It ought to bother you your fellowship's not right with God. It ought to bother you 
bother you if it's been a long time since you've been under the blood for, for forgiveness and for cleansing. Because 1 John 1, 7 was given to us to remind us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Let me tell you tonight, our, our day and age we live in, we are living in the Laodicean age according to Revelation chapter 3. And the Laodicean age typifies this. It is a very contented, it is a very indifferent, it is a very apathetic, it is a very complacent age. And you know, we get to the place because we have it so well and we have so much going for us. We get to the place where we're just, well, it didn't happen this week. I got next week to look forward to. And I got next week to look forward to. And we just keep pushing off, pushing off. But we're at this place where it doesn't bother us if we're lukewarm. And it doesn't bother us that we're indifferent. And it doesn't bother us that souls don't get saved. And it doesn't bother us that prayers don't get answered. And it doesn't bother us if we've missed our devotion for long periods of time. I'm not saying that to chasing anybody or browbeat anybody. I'm just saying today, I, I have those challenges. You have those challenges. Let's be honest with each other. Amen? You can be hypocritical in your way, and I can be hypocritical in my way. And I'm going to say tonight, if we don't get serious about our sins and what it means to God, we'll never see the revival God wants us to see in this church. And we'll never see the revival we need to see in this generation. I'm going to tell you tonight, some of us are carrying some old baggage and some old luggage. And you're carrying some old unforgivenesses, and you have some old things, some bitterness you've not done away with. You've not confessed it at the cross. You've got some old envies and jealousy and things like that. It's time tonight we get serious with God and realize that God could mark those inequities. And if he does mark it, who will stand? I'm saying tonight, we need to get serious with God. This man had a cognitive perception. He knew, he knew, man, he was in serious trouble. And listen tonight, we ought to be examining our hearts even right now. Lord, if there's some sin that's not being confessed, we ought to be, listen, we ought to be sweating bullets right now that God even knows that and that he hasn't marked our iniquities yet. Number one, we see a cognitive perception. Number two, would you notice a critical prayer? Verses one and two, he said, out of the depths have I cried unto thee. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. This man's feeling the wickedness and weight of his sins. By the way, just let me say tonight, all sins wicked to God. He's crying out. Would you look at the imagery he's giving to us? Out of the depths. John Newton wrote his biography. It's titled Out of the Depths. If you don't have it, get John Newton's biography. He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. The picture there is a man out on the ocean bobbing up and down. The waters, the tide and the waters are so rough. He's been under very deep like Jonah was. And he's come back up for air. And he's been down many times. In fact, he's even hit bottom there. This man has gone down to the depths as far as he can go. This man said, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. He's crying out with bubbles coming out of his mouth there. He cries out as a man that has descended very seriously into the ocean depths. And he's in need of rescue. He's a man realizing he needs help badly. But he's realizing he's been drowning in his sins. He's been drowning in his wickedness. He's been drowning in his ways. And he's finally come to the realization, if I don't turn to God, if I don't reach out to the Lord, I'm going to drown in this, 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 thing. this is not where I want to end up my life. This is not where I want to be. And so he says, out of the depths have I cried unto thee. He said, Lord, hear my voice. Now, I don't know what, where his condition was before he prayed this prayer, but I know one thing. He realized that he had a distance between him and God. And he said, Lord, hear my voice. He said, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. I mean, this man is struggling. This man knows he's in trouble. This man needs God. And he needs God in a desperate way. Hey, listen, our generation needs a generation of men and women, old and young where we have we're so desperate for God we realize we need God and we need God more than anything else in our life we need God he needed God right then and there we need God now his voice was hoarse from crying begging God for help gives new meaning to Hebrews 4 16 Hebrews 4, 16, those believers, those Hebrew believers were backsliding, gone far from God. And the writer, I believe it was Paul, was patiently writing to them, and he's encouraging them. You read Hebrews 4, it's a very encouraging chapter. And then he said, he closed that chapter by saying, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. And aren't you glad tonight, if you're saved, it's no longer a throne of judgment, it's a throne of grace. Amen? Amen. It's not a throne of judgment anymore, it's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of grace until you get saved, Okay? And so you have to realize tonight, he said, let us come, therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. That, thank God for that. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The psalmist describes in verses 1 and 2 in this prayer, it's like a heavy weight clinging to his body and weighing him down. He's very aware of the power of this, the weight of the sin to drown him. We cannot trifle with sin, brother and sister in Christ. It will drown us. It will destroy us. 
This man makes a prayer. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. Maybe tonight your soul is groaning after God. You're crying to the Lord. I hope that it is. You're saying, Lord, I need you tonight. And I need you more than I've ever needed you before. And as we go into a week of revival, listen, we, we call it a week of revival because the emphasis is the revival of hearts. But I'm going to tell you what, the best revivals, the revivals that start before the revival meetings. Get our hearts ready before God and just get genuine and realistic. And, you know, maybe God's putting some things in our hearts and minds. We just need to come before God. And thank God it's a, we have a personal relationship with the Lord if we're saved. But you can come to God tonight and you can have this critical prayer. He was praying in a crisis. And maybe we need to do some crisis praying. You hear me say this all the time. We better pray like we're in a trial or God sends us trials to teach us to pray. But notice something else here. We see a cognitive perception and we see the critical prayer. But go with me to verse 4. And I love this. Would you notice this? This man got a comprehensive pardon. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen. He got a comprehensive pardon. He said, but there is forgiveness with thee. Now, maybe somebody in your life hasn't forgiven you, but I'm going to tell you something tonight. I got a God in heaven. He's my heavenly Father. He forgives you. Amen. There's forgiveness with thee. It's a comprehensive forgiveness because the, the idea here is very, very comprehensive. And let me give you some things to think about tonight. Would you go to me to Leviticus 16, verses 21 to 22, and I want to help you understand the comprehensiveness of this forgiveness. Number one, it's probably in your notes there, it's pictured as a scapegoat that's sent away into the wilderness. Now this is a great passage of scripture because on the day of atonement, the high priest took two goats. The first goat they would slay, sprinkle the blood, and offer as a sacrifice for sins. But the second goat, notice what happens in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their, all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear, bear upon all, him all their iniquities until land not inhabited. And he shall let go, the goat, he let go of the goat into the wilderness. I want you to imagine with me in your mind. Look up here for a moment. I want you to imagine with me that one goat's been killed. Its blood's been shed. The covering for sin's been, been applied. But the second goat, he takes it. And Aaron takes that goat, and he prays over the head of this goat. And I'm not sure what he did. He may have confessed all the commandments that were broken and all the sins that were mentioned in Leviticus leading up to chapter 16. He, he was confessing the sins of the nation. I think it's the right thing. Pastors have to pray over their church and need to confess the sins of their church. And so he's praying over this, 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 this goat and he's, he's praying over this goat and he's saying, not for the goat's salvation or anything, but symbolically he's, pray, he's confessing the sins of the nation and what he in effect is doing symbolically, the sins of the nation are being transferred to this goat, symbolically speaking, not, not, not realistically, but symbolically symbolically speaking, and then the, the, the goat is given to a man with a rope, and the man takes it way out to the wilderness to let it run away. And here's what he's saying. He's typifying for us, or showing us the, the wonderfulness of forgiveness, because when our sins have been placed, when, when, our sins, when our sins are forgiven, it's like the goat, where the goat received, uh, that was transferred to the goat, the goat went out to the wilderness, they're sent far away. Hey, listen, forgiveness, God sends your sins far away. They're out in the wilderness, they're not going to come, those stinking things aren't going to come back to bother you anymore. They're sent away. I mean, they're forgiven. It's like that goat. And you can imagine the Hebrews there as they thought about all the sins that they did. You think about the, the golden calf worship and you think about murmuring against Moses and you think about the rebellion of Korah and you think about, you think about how they murmured about the bread and all those things and how Aaron the high priest prayed over that, that gold and what a relief it was those people were living under the idea that, their, that God would mark their iniquities and they could not stand. What a wonderful thing it was to see that man take the goat and they would be looking the next day and several days thereafter, well the goat come back. Listen, that goat went far away that's what happens when God forgives you your sins. Your sins go far away. Thank God. They're buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness tonight. There's a second thing. I want you to think with me about the scope of God's forgiveness. The scope is from east to west. Look at Psalms 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. Someone asked an elderly Christian lady, does the devil ever trouble you about your past sins? She said, Yes. And so the inquirer asked her, well, what do you do? I just tell the devil to go east. And then she, they came back and says, what do you do if it comes back? He said, tell him to go west. And then she said, the inquirer asked, what do you do if it comes back in? I just tell him, go from east to west. Why is that important? East and west never meet. East and west never meet. And that's what we need to do. When you get bothered and you get these insecurities about whether you're forgiven, tell the devil to go east. 
Tell the devil to go west. You can't tell him to go there because he will one day. God took care of that already, okay? But go from east to west. Okay, God will take care of that. He says, hey, the scope is from east to west. And listen, what a wonderful thing knowing that providentially your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And then notice the third thing about the comprehensive, the Spartan. Notice it's a thorough washing away of our sins. Go with me to Colossians 1.14. This is a wonderful. Colossians 1.14. In Colossians 1.14, Paul wrote this, in whom, Jesus Christ that is, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, just a side thought with you, modern contemporary versions of the Bible, majority of them, if not all of them, this is how it, that verse 14 reads. It says, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. What did they omit? The blood. That, is that a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. That's yeah, a problem. How did, you, how did redemption occur? Did redemption happen by money? Did, have redemption by, did redemption happen by a transfer of real estate? No. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption simply means to buy back, to buy out of. And he bought himself with his blood. But notice the power of this when it speaks about forgiveness. He said this redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ provides us the forgiveness of sins. Listen, the payment price, as we say so many times, please never let it go old on you, is the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. It, it, listen, the purchase price for our forgiveness is his blood. It's a thorough washing away of our sin. What a wonderful thought it is when we think about the comprehensiveness of this pardon. But notice something else here. Letter D, it's a complete expunging of our sin record. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word expunge, but the Bible uses the word justify, does it not? And justify means God looks at you and I just as if we never sinned. Listen, the devil will have you look at your sins, and he'll say, look at what the sins you've committed. But God says, what sins are you talking about? Amen? God says, what sins are you talking about? They're forgiven. They're under the blood. And listen, if you're, you're someone tonight who has this insecurity about God's forgiveness, please tonight, I beg you in Jesus' name, come to the Lord and experience his forgiveness and his peace and his wonderfulness. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, provides you a thorough cleansing, a thorough washing. We come with a repentant heart. And then notice, if you would, to just add more to that, you go down a little bit further and notice in verse 7, he speaks about the mercies of God. And then he says, with the Lord there is mercy. And he speaks about this redemption. He he puts an adjective there and he describes it as plenteous and redemption. I mean, it, listen, plenteous redemption means it never runs out. It never runs short. It never gets shortchanged. It's always wonderful. Listen, you can't go to the well too many times on that because, listen, God is ready to forgive you and I of all of our sins. They say that in New York City, there's a, there's a cemetery there with a headstone engraved with one single word, forgiveness. Just Forgiveness. It's a simple headstone. It's not embellished. No date of birth. No date of death. No epitaph. Just the name of the individual and the word forgiven. Most important thing about you and I is knowing that we are forgiven. What a comprehensive pardon. And then what you notice, number four tonight, something else, verses five and six. He had this cognitive perception about his sin. He had a crisis prayer in verses 1 and 2. In verse 4, he explains the comprehensive pardon, but there's forgiveness with thee. But notice in verses 5 and 6, he says something very interesting, which if you don't read it slowly, you would, see, well, what? you would say, well, how does this apply to everything? And he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. Did you know our, part of God's development of our soul life is waiting on God, trusting God. And God purposely makes us wait for the best things in life because without that, we would never learn the greatness of God for our life. And what he's talking about here when he says waiting for the Lord is that thank God there's forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is immediate. It's not, it's not in stages. Thank God tonight it's immediate. Say amen to that, amen? It's immediate. That's why I love 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all around. It's immediate. It's right there. But the work of grace in your life, in my life, using this term correctly, is progressive. Maturity in Jesus Christ is an ongoing work of God. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good will. And this man, though he knew he was forgiven, he had to still keep growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And what he's saying here is that he realizes that he was in a place in life, he had to wait on God for a number of things because he realized God had him in the place where his insecurities were overcome, where God took away his fears, God took away his worries, 
God took away his anxieties about his forgiveness. And God put him in the place where this man could just sit and wait on the Lord and just realize the greatest thing for my Christian life to grow and to grasp hold of things is to learn to wait on the Lord. He says, I will wait on the Lord. He says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for, look how he describes it, verse 6. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Would you notice this, number 4? This man teaches us something so important. He teaches us as we receive forgiveness, and God is still working in our lives, and God is trying to mature us and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. He teaches us about a contented patience. This contented patience is learning to just enjoy the Lord. How many tonight do you enjoy the Lord? Amen? I mean, just to just understand tonight, we are in a busy, fast-paced life. We're rushing our way through. We're not satisfied with most things. You just need to get to a place in life where you just enjoy God. Amen? And just enjoy being in the Lord's presence. And just enjoy, if you just got 60 seconds between a meeting, enjoy those 60 seconds to say, God, thank you that you're God. And just enjoy that you can spend a few minutes in prayer. But just enjoying the Lord. God, God teaching us this evening the importance of learning how to wait on him. Let me give you some things tonight. God is sanctifying you and I through his word. But the sanctifying process happens gradually over time. And he said, in thy word do I hope. I have faith in your word. Listen, we need to have faith that God's word can change our life and can give us victory. You have to realize something tonight. If you're going through crisis and you're relying on somebody else to read the scriptures to you and to pray for you, that's only going to go so far. There comes a time you've got to read the scriptures for yourself and pray for yourself. Because otherwise you can't claim what he's saying there. In thy word do I hope. And I remind people that are in the hospital, I said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be right here for you. But I want to tell you something. If you mean business with God, if you want to get out of this mess that you're in, you've got to learn how to hope in God's word. You've got to latch on to God and realize you've got to enjoy the Lord here. So let me give you some things. God, God's performing a work in us. That's what he's saying here. My soul doth wait. And his word do I hope. He's waiting on God. He's waiting on God to help get, make him a better person. Maybe he's someone that's dealing with unforgiveness in his life. Maybe someone dealing with ill will. And maybe someone dealing with with anger problems, maybe something, whatever me. He said, God, I've got to wait on you. You've got to help me. Now, let me give you some things about that, okay? Listen to this this evening. Waiting on God is focusing all our attention and our fellowship on Him. Throw away your commentaries. Put away your devotions, including the God mornings, and just focus on the Word of God. Just focus on God's Word. He's saying here, waiting on God is focusing all of our attention and our fellowship with Him. Listen to this. Waiting on God is spending time with Him in prayer. You say, well, I haven't had an answer to prayer in a long time. That doesn't mean you should stop praying. Keep on praying. Wait on the Lord. Listen to this. Waiting on God is not rushing God's work in your life. Don't rush God. God is, how many have figured out tonight God is not in a hurry? Amen? He's not in a hurry. God, waiting on God is not rushing God's work. Waiting on God is patiently anticipating that the darkness and the doubts will go away and seeing the light of his word will show us his path. Hey, this is when you're going through what he's going through, this crisis. It makes Psalms 119 very real. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know what he's saying there? He's realizing God only needs to give us enough light for the very next step. And that's all the light we need because all we need to trust God for is the next step. Some of us, we're such great planners and, strategic, and we're so strategic in our thinking. We want to look down 10 years in life. God's not going to tell you everything 10 years in life. He's already told us what's going to happen in the future in the Bible. We just have to trust him. We realize the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighted in his way. And we just have to trust God step by step at a time. But listen to what happens. We listen to our peers. We read some new evangelical author out there. They offer some newfangled idea that's not even scriptural. We listen to our friends, we listen to our peers, we read all these things, we're misinterpreting the scripture, and we haven't learned that God only needs to give you and I enough light for the very next step. And listen, how are you going to trust God, and how are you going to wait on the Lord, and how are you going to grow in Christ if you can't even trust Him for the very next step? And so he says that's what winning in God is. Listen to this. Winning on God is what Abraham had to do while he waited for the promised son. How long did Abraham wait? 25 years. Waiting on God is what Elijah did at the brook Kirith and in the city of Zarephath. Hey, you know, I, I just taught on this. I, taught, I preached a sermon the other day about the University of Kirith, okay? Everyone needs to go to the University of Kirith, all right? What an amazing thing. God could have put him at the River Jordan. He put him by the brook Kirith, which is next to Jordan. And every day for a year and a half, he watched this brook. If you can imagine, this brook, which is about this big, get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And he's supposed to trust God through all that, and he did. He did. He had to wait on God. And when it got down, there was nothing left. He had trust God. Because we read, we read 1 Kings 17. There's no anxiety in his heart. God put him in that place to help him over a period of time to learn how to trust God. And when God knew he was ready, the very last drop of water was gone. And God moved him over to the city of Zarephath. Waiting on God is what Elijah did. Hey, waiting on God brings us deep into his word. 
Winnie and God teaches us how to pray and get answers from God. Winnie and God makes us more effective servants. Winnie and God develops us in the walk of the Spirit. I'm saying tonight, this man, as he got, he, he got, he got mastery in this area of forgiveness by the grace of God, this man developed a contented patience in the Lord. Then notice verses 7 and 8. Notice something else God did for this man. Notice this man had a confident persuasion. We get to verse 7 and 8, and now he's, he's talking about not just himself, but others in, in, in the, family of, the family, if you would, that were struggling with these same things. He's talking on a national level, but he's talking about himself as well. He said, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. He's saying, I'm not the only one struggling. There are people nationally that are struggling. I don't know who they are, but there are other people that are struggling there. And so this man has a, we're talking about faith there. He said, have faith in God. That's what he's saying there in verse 7. Have faith in God. He says, you know why? He says, because this forgiveness with God, there's mercy. He says, you know what? God's mercy never runs out. Aren't you glad about that this morning? They're new every morning, amen? He said, let us real hope in the Lord. Faith in God's performance. Faith in God's promise. Let Israel hope in the Lord. And then he said, for the Lord, there's mercies. They're plenteous. They're new every morning. They're tender mercies. And listen, we're struggling. God deals with you and I in a tender way. He's not rough and abrasive. He's not short-tempered. He's not short in his, his attitude. God patiently and mercifully works with us. And then notice he speaks about plenteous redemption. can never be depleted. You can never be overspent. It's wonderful. That forgiveness, it's there resplendently over and over again. Have faith, I mean, tonight in God's forgiveness. Then notice what he says here in verse 8. And he shall redeem Israel from what? All his iniquities. Talk about a verse that's a compliment to 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Listen, he's telling, his, he's telling his, his fellow Israelites there, he says, listen, this redemption we have in Christ that gives us the forgiveness of sin, he shall redeem us from all of our iniquities. He, listen, he says, we know we're going to mess up and we're going to sin, but listen, he can forgive us over and over again. When we come with repentant hearts, God is able to forgive us. And you see something tonight? This man was struggling, but the, the key thought where he came into victory is in verse 4, verse, 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 um, verse four because he said, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. But notice as we close tonight, this man has a perception. This man makes a prayer. This man talks about a comprehensive pardon. This time I talked about a contented patience. This man talks about a confident persuasion. But as we end tonight, I want you to understand something. As we close tonight, all of that results in one thing because there's action on our part. There's something we have to do. And if we don't, we don't live tonight grasping this, we've missed the importance of what he's saying here because God demands out of us, as we understand his forgiveness, God demands out of us a consistent performance. And that performance is this. Look back at verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee, would you notice the last phrase, that thou mayest be feared. Did you catch what that said there? There's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And one of, the, one of the plights of every generation, is not just our generation, every generation, is a lack of a fear of God. A lack of a fear of God. And I'm talking about a reverential worship with God. I'm talking about realizing we, we are walking on holy ground when we come to church. I'm talking about realizing when you go to prayer and meet with God, you are on holy ground. He said, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Listen, God is not like, it's not like you and I tonight. You're going to get in that shower and you're going to take a shower and get cleaned up and you're just done with this, it. just part of your routine. Listen, forgiveness is not part of routine. Forgiveness is what we need day in and day out because our propensity to sin. But when we get this forgiveness with God, it's to help us get a little closer to the Lord and to help us get to the place where there's a greater fear of God, where it draws us closer to the Lord. And the fear of God helps us to remind us Jesus is coming soon and judgment's coming upon sinners. And we may never have another, we may never have another friend day, another Thanksgiving banquet. We may not get the chance to talk to that co-worker again or that neighbor again about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And listen, don't treat God's forgiveness cheaply and don't treat God's mercy for you cheaply. Look at it as being very expensive. Salvation is free, I would tell you, but it is not cheap. That there's forgiveness with thee. That thou mayest be feared. You know what he's putting his finger on? The reason why he got all those insecurities? And the starting point 
of his Christian life, he didn't have the right understanding of the fear of God. Listen what the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus Christ is sanctification, redemption, and wisdom. There's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Forgiveness should not be just like taking a bath and saying, I'm going to be irresponsible. But realizing that he's our heavenly father and he's our God. And he expects and demands of us that we have this proper respect and reverence for him. May I say tonight as we close, thank God tonight there's forgiveness with God. Thank God tonight that he could mark iniquities. And if he did mark our iniquities, we don't stand a chance. But there's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. Maybe tonight you're struggling with an insecurity. Hope that you can settle tonight that God forgives you. And maybe tonight you're not saved. I invite you this evening to have your sins forgiven tonight, to mark today being the day of your spiritual birthday, that you're born again into the family of God. Because the Bible says salvation is according to his mercy by the washing regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's all a work of God. God wants to save. You're not sure you're saved today. I pray that the person next to you that brought you to church or gave on your own, you sent one of our members, that they would just invite you today to call upon the name of the Lord to save you. Because the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You can be saved tonight. And Christian friend, let's not, let's not languish. Let's not languish with sins that could be marked. But let's come with faith and say, God, thank you, there's forgiveness with you that thou mayest be feared. And let's renew not only our, our fellowship with God, but let's renew our fear of God. And that fear, and I'm not talking about where you run from God. I'm talking about running to God. Listen, it's just like a child. A child has a reverence to their parents. And the reverence to the parents, they know they're not supposed to cross a certain line, but they know there's love in that relationship. They know there's embracement in that relationship. They know they're accepted. They're never cast out. And I'm saying tonight, that's the relationship God wants you to have, to realize that there's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. He wants you to come to him. And listen, when you look at the prodigal son, when he came to his father, he had a fear of his dad in the sense that, you know what, I'm not going to cross that line anymore. My dad's gone way overboard and helped me. He put a ring on my finger, shoes on my feet. He put new clothes on me. He killed the fatted calf. He did all things. He said, there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. How about tonight? You need to come to God and experience the wonderfulness of forgiveness this evening. Why don't you do that this evening? And maybe you you're, you're feel like this man tonight. Out of the depths, you're crying to God. You feel like deep down your soul, you're groaning and agonizing. Hey, listen, he was there. I've been there. You're there, you've been there, there's forgiveness with God. You come to him tonight, experience the wonderfulness of God's forgiveness that he may be feared.